Imagine if you were a student of Leonardo da Vinci during the height of the Renaissance in Florence, Italy. A man who is still widely considered as one of the greatest artists and intellectual minds of all time. What do you think you would have learned as one of his apprentices? All the secrets of oil painting, all the hidden proportions of anatomy, Leonardo's philosophy on life. What do you think he would talk about? Well, we're going to find out today on this episode. This is Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. This is Codex 33, Leonardo da Vinci's Notebooks, Part 2. If you haven't listened to Part 1, I recommend you pause this episode and scroll down in your podcast feed to Episode 32, Leonardo da Vinci's Notebooks, Part 1. Give that a listen and come back. It'll give you a strong foundation for what's to come. At the midpoint of the episode, we'll take a brief intermission to listen to a sneak preview of the last episode of my Kurt Cobain series. And by the end, we will also explore an illustration found in Leonardo's notebooks, which became the most famous illustration in human history, the Vitruvian Man. Without further ado, let's begin. It's the early 1500s in Italy. At the height of the Renaissance, a war is raging in the streets of Florence, the art capital of the world. This war is not being fought with swords and fists. It is being fought by artistry and wit. This is an intellectual battle to determine the highest form of art, that art which is superior to all others. And everyone is joining in the fray, from philosophers and poets to sculptors, architects, and painters. The Italians call this historic debate Paragone. That's P-A-R-A-G-O-N-E. It is the debate of the era, spoken about in the salons of wealthy patrons and passionately argued in town squares. What is the most superior art form? The wordsmiths, like Benedetto Varci, argue its poetry, an art that can capture the essence of any passing moment for all eternity. The stoneworkers, like Benvenuto Cellini, argue with sculpture, an art that can present a human form in volumetric space, one that is so lifelike it can fool a blind man's touch. Leonardo da Vinci argues it's painting. He states, The eye, which is called the window of the soul, is the chief means whereby the understanding may most fully and abundantly appreciate the infinite works of nature, and the ear is the second, inasmuch as it acquires its importance from the fact that it hears the things which the eye has seen. If you historians or poets or mathematicians had never seen things with your eyes, you would be ill able to describe them in your writings. And if you, O oh poet, represent a story by depicting it with your pen, the painter with his brush will so render it as to be more easily satisfying and less tedious to understand. If you call painting mute poetry, then the painter may say of the poet that his art is blind painting. Consider then, which is the more grievous affliction, to be blind or to be mute? Although the poet has a wide choice of subjects as the painter, his creations fail to afford as much satisfaction to mankind as do paintings. For while poetry attempts to represent forms, 
actions, and scenes with words. The painter employs the exact images of these forms in order to reproduce them. Consider then, which is more fundamental to man, the name of man or his image? The name changes with change of country. The form is unchanged except by death. And if the poet serves the understanding by way of the ear, the painter does so by the eye, which is the nobler sense." Unquote. In these Paragone debates, Leonardo boldly states that painting is the most intellectual art form, requiring the highest degree of contemplative thought and planning from the artist's mind. In his writings, we even see Leonardo argue that painting should be included among the liberal arts, which give the student a formal education about the world. Painting teaches one how to see, how to appreciate nature and understand the forms around you through studies of anatomy, perspective, light, and science. It's a convincing argument. This type of competitive spirit between the various arts also extended into competition between artists who were working in the same art form. In Medici palaces, art viewings would be arranged in such a way that paintings were pitted against each other. The viewer would see both of them side by side and be encouraged to make comparison between them, to understand their methods and to determine the better artist. Those artists who held higher public opinion in the discourse naturally were more likely hired for work by the court families and for church commissions. This meant that artists were frequently in direct competition with one another. This was the spirit of Paragone during the Renaissance. If you can imagine, there were times when Michelangelo, Raphael, and Leonardo were competing for the same commission. Now, I'm talking about the artists, not the Ninja Turtles, just to be clear. Because of this, Florence, during the Renaissance, was a fertile ground for innovation. Because, as we see even today, competition drives innovation in all arts. It forces artists and inventors to develop new methods and ideas. Leonardo wrote, You will be ashamed to be counted among droughtsmen if your work is inadequate, and this disgrace must motivate you to profitable study. Second, a healthy envy will stimulate you to become one of those who are praised more than yourself, for the praises of others will spur you on." Unquote. It's out of this fertile debate and competition that the need for academies of the arts was born. Private schools, which continue today, where creatives can learn and master their craft outside of the guild structure. And similarly, this was the era of the treatise. If you had mastered your craft and rose through the ranks of your field, through the praises directed your way through the paragone, then it would be customary for you to write a treatise, sharing your knowledge with all the world, and everyone would clamor to read it. But among all treatises from the Renaissance, there's not one with as strange a history and as influential a place in art as Leonardo da Vinci's Treatise on Painting. That's the main focus of this episode. What is the treatise about? Why was it only published over a century after Leonardo's death? And what does it teach us about Leonardo's genius? Chapter 3. The Treatise on Painting
Imagine if you were a student of Leonardo da Vinci over 500 years ago, during the height of the Italian Renaissance. Let's say you were one of his apprentices at his Florence workshop. What kind of things do you think you'd learn? What do you imagine Leonardo would talk about? There's no doubt that experience would be priceless, and I imagine the lessons you would learn would stay with you for a lifetime. Of course, we have no direct window into such things without bending the laws of time and space, but we have the next best thing, Leonardo's Treatise on Painting. In the last episode, we explored Leonardo's notebooks, which are grouped into codices that are strewn across the corners of the globe, where Leonardo's notebooks are this thoroughly eclectic mixture of passing thoughts and inspirations, Leonardo's treatise on painting is a highly organized collection of his most important lessons concerning the craft of painting. The treatise is arranged into five broad subjects, with each branching off into subtopics. The main subjects are 1. Drawing 2. Invention or Composition 3. Light and Shadow 4. Colors and Coloring 5. Miscellaneous Observations Leonardo's lessons in each topic appear as these short entries, often only a paragraph or two in length, and you can imagine Leonardo taking any of these brief statements and expanding them into lectures for his apprentices in training. They're almost like PowerPoint slides from the 15th century. The treatise was first published in 1632, that's 113 years after Leonardo's death, but upon its release, it gained quick notoriety. All artists of the 17th century wanted to know what secrets Leonardo knew that they didn't, and the interest in Leonardo's mind hasn't wavered since. But why was the treatise not published during his lifetime? Why did it take 113 years? Why not a year after his death? The reasons for that are just as colorful and interesting as the treatise itself, and we'll explore those a bit later. Let's first get a taste for this historic document, and the reason it inspired countless artists in the centuries following its release. I've chosen some of the most interesting lessons for us to explore here. They're arranged in the treatise as these short entries, so instead of reciting them piecemeal, I've stitched several of these entries together to give more of the flavor of a lecture that Leonardo would have given on the topic. For this purpose, I'm using an English translation of Leonardo's Treatise on Painting from 1835, translated by John Francis Rigaud. Our first lesson concerns drawing and proportion. Imagine you're an apprentice in Leonardo's workshop in 1490. Leonardo states, A young student should, in the first place, acquire a knowledge of perspective, to enable him to give every object its proper dimensions. After which, it is requisite that he be under the care of an able master, to accustom him by degrees to a good style of drawing the parts. Next, he must study nature, in order to confirm and fix in his mind the reason of those precepts which he has learned. He must also bestow some time in viewing the works of various old masters, to form his eye and judgment, in order that he may be able to put in practice all that he has been taught. Concerning your education, it reflects no great honor on a painter to be able to execute only one thing well, 
such as a head, an academy figure, draperies, animals, landscapes, or the like, thereby confining himself to some particular object of study. Because there's scarcely a person so void of genius as to fail of success if he applies himself earnestly to one branch of study and practices it continually. A painter ought to aim at universal excellence, for he will be greatly wanting in dignity if he do one thing well and another badly, as many do, who study only the naked figure measured and proportioned by a pair of compasses in their hands, and do not seek for variety. A man may be well proportioned, and yet be tall or short, large or lean, or of a middle size, and whoever does not make great use of these varieties, which are all existing in nature in its most perfect state, will produce figures as if cast in one and the same mold, which is highly reprehensible. If you wish to retain with facility the general look of a face, you must first learn how to draw well several faces, mouths, eyes, noses, chins, throats, necks, and shoulders. In short, all those principal parts which distinguish one man from another. For instance, noses are of three different sorts, straight, concave, and convex. Nature seems to delight in infinite variety. Of the straight noses, there are but four variations, short or long, high at the end, or low. Of the concave, there are three sorts. Some have the concavity above, some in the middle, and some at the end. The convex noses always vary three ways. Some project in the upper part, some in the middle, and others at the bottom. All of these affect the profile. In the front view, there are 11 different sorts. Even, thick in the middle, thin in the middle, thick at the tip, thin at the beginning, thin at the tip, and thick at the beginning. Broad, narrow, high, and low nostrils, some with a large opening and some more shut towards the tip. The same variety will be found in all other parts of the face, which must be drawn from nature and retained in the memory, or else, when you mean to draw a likeness from memory, take with you a pocketbook, in which you have marked all these variations of features, and after having given a look at the face you mean to draw, retire a little aside and note down in your book which of the features are similar to it, that you may put it all together at home. Finally, the painter ought always to form in his mind a kind of system of reasoning or discussion within himself on any remarkable object before him. He should stop, take notes, and form some rule upon it, considering the place, the circumstances, and the lights and shadows. Leonardo has given us a lot to digest in his first lesson. The key takeaways are a strong foundation for your artistic journey begins with a knowledge of perspective and proportion. Being able to see and draw objects from their various angles so that you understand how your position to them alters their perspective and proportion. It's very likely that Leonardo's first exercises for new apprentices would have been to draw basic geometric shapes. Before trying to draw faces or figures, he would have likely presented shapes cast from molds, which are then placed near a window to create shadowed areas. This would test and train the artist's eye in the most direct forms first, the sphere, the cube, and the cylinder. 
the forms which are then combined in infinite variety to create the human figure. The next portion of the lesson concerns a great artist's goal, universal excellence, to not just be satisfied with greatness in faces, landscapes, nude figures, or flowers, but to challenge oneself to represent all with the same even care and quality. And you can see this quest for universal excellence in every painting Leonardo put a brush to, every flower, fabric, face, hand, cloud, mountain, and rock formation is given the same attentive care. He ends the lesson by giving an example of how an artist can train themselves to understand the variety of the human form, specifically in drawing faces, by categorizing all the variations of the human face's parts. In the example given, Leonardo lists 10 types of noses when seen inside profile and 11 different types when viewed from the front. He doesn't give an extensive list of every variation of the eye and mouth and cheeks and forehead here, though he does so later in the anatomy section of the treatise. This is more to encourage the artist in how to see the human face, that there are patterns which are traceable across all faces, and likewise, there are patterns the attentive mind can recognize in all of the natural world. Patterns which are a great artist's responsibility to understand and see. And through that understanding, we elevate our art. Leonardo's second lesson concerns anatomy and motion. When Leonardo was first learning his craft, he felt a kinship to an earlier Italian artist and engineer named Leon Battista Alberti. Alberti had written a treatise too. It is simply called On Painting. Young Leonardo was an avid reader. He had to be, as he was entirely self-taught and lacked a formal education. Alberti's On Painting is a book which young Leonardo studied closely, and so he took its lessons to heart. Alberti argued that a great artist must always build a picture of their human or animal subjects from the bones first, then the muscles, and then the flesh. We see Leonardo adopt this approach into his personal art philosophy as if it were a commandment. In the Codex Atlanticus, we see Leonardo write, It is necessary that a painter should be a good anatomist, that in his attitudes and gestures he may be able to design the naked parts of the human frame according to the just rules of the anatomy of the nerves, bones, and muscles, and that in its different positions he may know what particular nerve or muscle is the cause of such a particular movement, in order that he may make that muscle only marked and apparent, and not all the rest, as many artists are in the habit of doing, who, though they may appear great designers, make the naked limbs stiff and without grace, so that they have more the appearance of a bag of nuts than the human superficies, or rather, like a bundle of radishes than naked muscles." Unquote. When we observe the human figures in Leonardo's paintings, we see this philosophy clearly at play. The women, such as Saint Anne and the Virgin Mary, have this natural grace to them, and even the men, such as in Leonardo's Saint John the Baptist, don't show unnecessary muscle tension if their action does not coincide with such a display. In Leonardo's approach, if you are not lifting something heavy or moving a limb swiftly, then the corresponding muscle group shouldn't appear tense, 
This is an honest depiction of the figure, which communicates the emotional state of the figure to the viewer. Compare this with artists like Michelangelo and look at the Sistine Chapel. You'll see this egregious amount of flexing going on. Thighs protruding that aren't lifting, necks and forearms in tension, etc. It looks like the artist used a weightlifting magazine for reference. Even many of the women seem to be modeled after male muscular bodies. It's this trend in painting that Leonardo was throwing shade on. In Leonardo's treatise on painting, he expands on this foundational understanding. In his second lesson to us, his humble apprentices, he states, I ask you, dear student, in comparing works by multiple artists, what painting is the most commendable, the most worthy of praise? That painting, which has the greatest conformity to what is meant to be imitated. This kind of comparison will often put to shame a certain description of painters who pretend they can mend the works of nature, as they do, for instance, when they pretend to represent a child of 12 months old, giving him eight heads in height when nature, in its best proportion, admits but five, the breadth of the shoulders also, which is equal to the head, they make double, giving to a child a year old the proportions of a man of 30. They have so often practiced and seen others practice these errors that they have converted them into habit, which has taken so deep root in their corrupted judgment that they persuade themselves that nature and her imitators are wrong in not following their own practice. In my observations, in men and children, I find a great difference between the joints of the one and the other, and in the length of the bones. For example, using the length of the head as a measure, from the extremity of one shoulder to the other, a man has the distance of two heads, the same from the top of the shoulder to the elbow, and from the elbow to the ends of the fingers, two heads. But the child has only one head in each of these measurements, because nature gives the proper size first to the seat of the intellect and afterwards to the other parts. Therefore, a well-proportioned and full-grown man is ten times the length of his head, and the width of his shoulders will be two heads. Likewise, it is very necessary that painters should have a knowledge of the bones which support the flesh by which they are covered, but particularly of the joints, which increase and diminish the length of them in their appearance as in the arm, which does not measure the same when bent as when extended, its difference between the greatest extension and bending is about one-eighth of its length. The increase and diminution of the arm is affected by the bone projecting out of its socket at the elbow, which is lengthened from the shoulder to the elbow, the angle it forms being less than a right angle. It will appear longer as that angle becomes more acute and will shorten in proportion as it becomes more open or obtuse. Note down which muscles and tendons are brought into action by the motion of any member, and when they are hidden. The muscles of the human body are to be more or less marked according to their degree of action. Those only which act are to be shown, and the more forcibly they act, the stronger they should be pronounced. Those that do not act at all remain soft and flat. Remember that these remarks are of the greatest importance to painters and sculptors who profess to study anatomy and the science of the muscles. Do the same with children, following the different gradations of age from their birth even to decrepitude.
describing the changes which the members, and particularly the joints, undergo, which of them grow fat and which lean. Notice that all the joints of the human body become larger by bending, except that of the leg. Of all the members which have pliable joints, the knee is the only one that lessens in the bending and becomes larger by extension. Now, regarding motion, motion is created by the loss of due equipose, that is, by inequality of weight, for nothing can move of itself without losing its center of gravity, and the farther that it is removed, the quicker and stronger will be the motion. For example, a figure standing upon its feet without motion will form an equipose of all its members round the center of its support. If this figure without motion and resting upon its feet happens to move one of its arms forward, it must necessarily throw as much of its weight on the opposite side, as is equal to that of the extended arm and the accidental weight, and the same, I say, of every part which is brought out beyond its usual balance. A weight can never be lifted up or carried by any man if he does not throw more than an equal weight of his own on the opposite side. Likewise, a figure will appear the swiftest in its course, which leans the most forward, and we see the same principle at play in animals. Any body, moving of itself, will do it with more or less velocity in proportion as the center of its gravity is more or less removed from the center of its support. Take for example the motion of birds, which, without any clapping of their wings or assistance of wind, move themselves. This happens when the center of their gravity is out of the center of their support, or out of its usual residence, the middle between the two wings. Because, if the wings be more backward than the center of the whole weight, the bird will move forwards and downwards, in a greater or lesser degree as the center of its weight is more or less removed from the middle of its wings. In closing, let us recall our objective. The attitudes and all the members of a figure are to be executed in such a manner that by them the intentions of the mind may be easily discovered. And always remember, Consult the natural world for everything. Whoever flatters himself that he can retain in his memory all the effects of nature is deceived, for our memory is not so capacious. Therefore, consult nature for everything." Unquote. In this lesson, Leonardo gives several examples illustrating the unique logic that human proportions follow. He begins with the principle that a man's height is equivalent to ten measurements of his head, and that a child's height is only five measurements of his or her head. A man's shoulder width is equivalent to two heads, and a small child's to one head. He then gives a particular emphasis to the study of joints which likely many artists overlook when studying anatomy. He mentions this interesting property of joints, that they swell in size when bent and decrease when straightened. This is really interesting and not at all intuitive. In other parts of the treatise, not mentioned here, he even gives the example of the human hand, reflecting on the joints of the fingers, that they swell larger by a small degree when the fingers are bent versus when they are straight. In our lesson, Leonardo makes one exception to this rule. 
one joint which does not exhibit this effect, the knee. When it is straight, it is larger than when it is bent. Really interesting stuff. These are all details which Leonardo noticed from studying the human figure himself. It's known that in his later writings, he admits to having dissected up to 30 corpses throughout his life. We can assume he did that to study them, not just for kicks, but I guess you never know. Stranger things have happened. Now, I don't know that such a level of dedication in modern times is required to internalize an understanding of the human body because we have countless digital resources and books which break these things down for us today. Resources which Leonardo didn't have in his time. But still, I imagine seeing these things for yourself carries more imaginative weight and richness in your memory than reading about them. Leonardo ends our second lesson by discussing the nature of movement and how it's represented by a human body. He gives us the visual reference of a center of gravity that all bodies return to, and he explains that when a limb is displaced from that center of gravity, another part of the body must accommodate the displacement to re-establish the balance or equipose again. He also makes mention that leaning forward from the center of gravity creates a type of forward momentum, giving the great example of birds in flight. This reminded me of an old saying that goes, walking is controlled falling, which is a wonderful visual here that I find I've been thinking about lately after reflecting on these insights from Leonardo. Which brings us to our third lesson from the treatise on painting. Color, light, and shadow. Some notes to consider that will give us some context. Here, Leonardo is specifically talking about oil painting, which is by its nature different than acrylic painting or watercolor painting. So the effects he mentions, such as the transparency of certain methods, is specific to oil. The other note, when he uses the term ground, it is in reference to layering transparent colors. Ground refers to the color underneath the topmost color. Leonardo states, The student, who is desirous of making great proficiency in the art of imitating the works of nature, should not only learn the shape of figures or other objects and be able to delineate them with truth and precision, but he must also accompany them with their proper lights and shadows, according to the situation in which those objects appear. The first of all simple colors is white. The philosophers will not acknowledge either white or black to be colors, because the first is the cause or the receiver of colors, the other totally deprived of them. But as painters cannot do without either, we shall place them among the others, and according to this order of things, white will be the first, yellow the second, green the third, blue the fourth, red the fifth, and black the sixth. We shall set down white for the representative of light, without which no color can be seen, yellow for the earth, green for water, blue for air, red for fire, and black for total darkness. Although the mixture of colors may be extended to an infinite variety, almost impossible to be described, I will not omit touching slightly upon it. A great artist must make use of this experiment to understand the full scope of color possibilities. First, by setting down a certain number of simple colors to serve as a foundation, white, yellow, blue, red, and black, and with each of these mixing one of the others, one with one, then two with two, and three with three, proceeding in this manner to the full mixture of all colors together, 
Then I would begin again, mixing two of these colors with two others, and three with three, four with four, and so on to the end. To these two colors, we shall put three, to these three add three more, and then six, increasing always in the same proportion. I call those simple colors which are not composed and cannot be made or supplied by any mixture of other colors. Black and white are not reckoned among colors. The one is the representative of darkness, the other of light. That is, one is a simple privation of light, the other is light itself. Yet I will not omit mentioning them, because there is nothing in painting more useful and necessary than black and white, since painting is but in effect produced by lights and shadows, or chiaroscuro. When beginning a new painting, stretch your canvas upon a frame, then give it a coat of a minimum size, let it dry, and draw your outlines upon it. Paint the flesh colors first, and while it is still fresh or moist, paint also the shadows, well softened and blended together. The flesh color may be made with white, red lake, and Naples yellow, the shades with black, umber, and a little red lake. You may, if you please, use black chalk. After you have softened this first coat, or dead color, and let it dry, you may retouch over it with red lake and other colors, and gum water that has been a long while made and kept liquid, because in that state it becomes better and does not leave any gloss. Again, to make the shades darker, take the red lake and gum water as mentioned, and ink, and with this you may shade or glaze many colors, because it is transparent, such as azure, red lake, and several others. As for the lights, you may retouch or glaze them slightly with gum water and pure lake, particularly vermilion. For those colors which you intend to appear beautiful, prepare a ground of pure white. This is meant only for transparent colors. As for those that have a body and are opaque, it matters not what ground they have, and a white one is of no use. This is exemplified by painted glasses, when placed between the eye and clear air, they exhibit most excellent and beautiful colors, which is not the case when seeing them through cloudy air or some opaque body behind them. When a transparent color is laid upon another of a different nature, it produces a mixed color, different from either of the simple ones which compose it. This is observed in the smoke coming out of a chimney, which, when passing before the black soot, appears bluish, but as it ascends against the blue of the sky, it changes its appearance to a reddish brown. So the color red lake, laid upon blue, will turn it to a violet color. Yellow upon blue turns to green. Saffron upon white becomes yellow. White scumbled upon a dark ground appears blue and is more or less beautiful as the white and the ground are more or less pure. We are to consider here in what part any color will show itself in its most perfect purity, whether in the strongest light or deepest shadow in the demi-tint or in the reflection, it would be necessary to determine first of what color we mean to treat, because different colors differ materially in that respect. Black is most beautiful in the shades, white in the strongest light, blue and green in the half-tint, yellow and red in the principal light, gold in the reflections, and red lake in the half-tint. As the quality of colors is discovered to the eye by the light, it is natural to conclude that where there is most light, there also the true quality of the color is to be seen, and where there is most shadow, the color will participate of and be tinged with the color of that shadow. Remember then, to show the true quality of the color in the light parts only. On the topic of painting white objects, 
or clothing in your paintings. To any white body receiving the light from the sun or the air, the shadows should be of a bluish cast, because white is no color, but a receiver of all colors. And as by the fourth proposition, we learn that the surface of any object participates of the colors of other objects near it. It is evident that a white surface will participate of the color of the air by which it is surrounded. Concerning the nature of representing shadows, observe that where the shadows end, there is always a kind of half-shadow to blend them with the lights. The shadow derived from any object will mix more with the light at its termination, in proportion as it is more distant from that object. But the color of the shadow will never be simple. Furthermore, those shadows which in nature are undetermined, and the extremities of which can hardly be perceived, are to be copied in your painting in the same manner, never to be precisely finished, but left confused and blended. This apparent neglect will show great judgment and be the ingenious result of your observations of nature. This brings us to our final point for now, the manner in which to arrange colors for maximum contrast. Here is a principle you can rely on. In the instance of different bodies, which are equal in whiteness and equal in distance from the eye, that which is surrounded by the greatest darkness will appear the whitest. And on the contrary, that shadow will appear the darkest, which has the brightest white around it. Likewise, of two different colors, which are equal in clarity, that color will appear most excellent, which is seen near its direct contrary. For example, a pale color against red, a black upon white, though neither the one or the other are colors, blue near a yellow, or green near red. This effect is so pronounced because each color is most distinctly seen when opposed to its contrary than to any other similar to it. What a great lesson. There's so many intriguing principles about light, shadow, and color that Leonardo shares with us here. It's really worth returning to this lesson more than once, as each time, another point may stick out. At the moment, the one which gives me a lot of pause for thought is the statement that where there is most light, there also the true quality of the color is to be seen. And it's so interesting to hear Leonardo explaining the initial steps of his painting process at the start of the lesson, and to imagine Leonardo experimenting with all of these colors, which to our modern sensibilities are actually very basic, white, black, yellow, green, blue, red, umber, and purple. Yet somehow, through his experiments, Leonardo creates such masterworks. It's encouraging in a way that even from the most basic parts, mixed with some inspiration, patience, and ingenuity, one can create something to stand the test of time. But something bothers me. In the last passage, he mentions the principle of contrasting colors, and he uses the term contrary colors, which in our modern understanding we call complementary colors. These are pairs of colors which are polar opposites from each other, and when mixed together, neutralize each other by creating a gray tone. For example, red's complementary color is green, as green is created from a mixture of the two other primary colors, blue and yellow, resulting in a color that is most distant from red on the color wheel, and hence, green contains all of the pigments which neutralize red, the same way black neutralizes white. 
And when complementary colors are placed side by side, such as red and green, blue and orange, or yellow and purple, it creates this striking color contrast. This is the principle Leonardo seems to be talking about, but he calls them contrary colors. He states, Likewise, of two different colors, which are equal in clarity, that color will appear most excellent, which is seen near its direct contrary. For example, a pale color against red, a black upon white, blue near a yellow, or green near red. This effect is so pronounced because each color is more distinctly seen when opposed to its contrary than to any other similar to it." Unquote. So why does Leonardo say blue and yellow? Surely he must mean blue and orange, right? I don't understand. The complementary color of blue, and hence its opposite, is orange, not yellow. All right, let's try to find maybe another place in the treatise where Leonardo mentions the color orange and see what he says. Hmm. Uh, searching through the index, it gets us no results. It seems he speaks of all the other colors, including rarer ones like vermilion and saffron, but no orange. Okay, maybe it's a mistake. How about we search the digitized version of the treatise, so the computer will scan the entire document for the mention of the color orange. Well, uh, this is bizarre. Orange is not mentioned even once in all of the 365 entries of the treatise. Okay, I got it. He must mention it at some point in his notebooks, even in passing, because there's no way he doesn't talk about the orange of a sunset, or a flame, or a fox's fur. Here we go, a few results. Phew, I thought I was losing my mind there for a second. In the experiments section of his complete notebooks, the Edward McCurdy translation, Leonardo shares this experiment. Take away that yellow surface which covers the orange and distill it in a retort until the extract is pronounced perfect. What? The yellow surface which covers the orange? Uh, you mean the orange surface? Right? Right, Leonardo? Don't do this to me. <laughs> is it possible that Leonardo referred to the color orange as yellow? That's ridiculous, right? Or is it? Okay, let's go back to the treatise on painting. We didn't find any mention of orange there, but what if instead of orange, we search for yellow and see what context it's used in? Here we go. Entry 245. <clears throat> the light of the fire. Yes, of course, fire is orange. Here we go. The light of the fire tinges everything a reddish yellow. But this will hardly appear evident if we do not make the comparison with the daylight. Reddish yellow? Uh, you mean orange? <laughs> what, what the hell is going on here? Uh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, let me look this up. At this point, dear listeners, I fell down a research rabbit hole for about an hour trying to find an explanation and any sources about the existence of the color orange during the Renaissance. Let's fast forward an hour and see what I dig up. Okay, okay, I'm back. I hope you're sitting down for this. Ready? Leonardo did not have a name for the color orange. I know, I know, it makes no sense, but it gets better. 
It wasn't just Leonardo. All of Italy did not have a name for the color orange. I know. I know it sounds implausible, but it gets better. All of Europe, all the way up until the 1500s, did not have a name for the color orange. Yes. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word orange started to be used in descriptions of colors of cloth or clothing only as late as the 16th century. So, the century of Leonardo's death. That's crazy. And this coincided with Portuguese sailors bringing tasty oranges from China to Europe. In essence, in Leonardo's notebooks, we are seeing the moment right before orange exists. Now, how is this possible? The color existed, certainly. You see it in paintings from before the time period. And artists like Leonardo could create the color orange with their pigments. And they did. So what the hell did they call it? It seems, just like Leonardo, they called it reddish-yellow. The invention of orange seems to coincide with the import of oranges from China to Europe. It also coincides with the ability to dye fabrics to that color. But you might say, wait a second, they must have had carrots and pumpkins back then? Well, yes and no. It turns out, and I didn't know this, carrots used to be yellow or purple. Yeah. At some point, farmers and merchants began to prefer the orange ones, and so they began to breed them that way. Pumpkins, on the other hand, were not introduced into Europe until around the 1500s. So, essentially, the economy of oranges and orange-dyed fabrics drove people to coin a word to describe that yellowish-red color that seemed to exist in the middle between yellow and red. Until we wanted to sell it, we didn't need a name for orange. I wonder how this affected our ability to see orange. If you don't have a name for something, can you perceive it? If we have not differentiated something into existence, does it exist? I have to imagine artists could still see the color. They no doubt understood it as the gradation between yellow and red. But what about everyone else? It's so strange and implausible that an entire continent would not have a word for the color orange for at least a period of 1,500 years. Yet, it seems to be true. For Europe, anyway. It turns out that in places like ancient China, they already had oranges. And curiously, the character for the color orange in Chinese is the same as the character for the fruit orange. Wild, huh? There's one last example I found from Leonardo's treatise on painting, after doing some more digging. In entry 237, Leonardo is describing the unique properties of light reflections, especially when sunlight is reflecting from one object onto another object. And in this instance, it tints the second object with the color of the first. In this example, he describes the scene to us by labeling the sun's light with the letter A. He labels the first object, which is doing the reflecting, B, and the second object receiving the reflection is E. He states, Now, let's suppose the color of object B is red. In that case, the light it produces, being red, will tinge with red the surface of object E. And if E happens to also be red, you will see that color increase in beauty and appear redder than B. But if E were yellow, you will see a new color, 
participating of the red and the yellow. Unquote. A new color, participating of the red and the yellow. You mean orange? It really calls to mind this idea that our mind differentiates things into existence. Without differentiating a thing and naming it, that thing just settles back into the infinite universe around us. It makes me wonder, what other things do we perceive which we don't yet have a name for? Feel free to message me your answers. I'd love to hear them. Now it's time for a brief intermission. At this point in the episode, in most podcasts, this is where you'd hear some advertisement about weed butter, flame-resistant underwear, or organic oranges. But not on Creative Codex. Instead, I'm going to ask you for a favor. If you can, please rate the show on Spotify. It's super easy to do. Just open up your Spotify app and search Creative Codex. That's C-O-D-E-X. At the top of the show page, you'll see some stars. Just use those to give us a healthy star boost. Our current goal is to get up to 1,000 ratings. And we're almost there. It will really help the show get discovered by more people. And I thank you in advance for that. If you've been enjoying this episode and find this work valuable and would like to show your support in other ways, please consider becoming a patron of Creative Codex on my Patreon. By becoming a supporter of the show, you get a ton of exclusive content, including all the Creativity Tip episodes, some rare episode exclusives, and even the limited release series, which currently has three full-length episodes about the lead singer and songwriter of the band Nirvana, Kurt Cobain. I just released the final episode in that series, and it's a heavy hitter. It covers the final year of Kurt's creative work and life, all the way up to his tragic end. You can find all of that on my Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. The link is also in the episode description. And I send my biggest thanks to everyone who currently supports the show and who has supported in the past. Honestly, all of you help to keep this show independent and help to keep it going. Thank you. Here's a sneak preview from Limited Release Series Episode 3, Kurt Cobain, I'm Not Like Them, Part 3. From the moment Nirvana is thrust into the public spotlight, Kurt entertains ways to sabotage those opportunities, especially when those opportunities are on live television. In September 1992, Nirvana is scheduled to perform at the MTV Video Music Awards. At this time, in the 90s, the Video Music Awards play a prominent role in the music industry, as both a way of solidifying the popularity of new bands and as a night of celebration for the power brokers of the industry. MTV booked Nirvana to play at the live show months in advance, and their scheduled appearance guarantees that millions will be watching. MTV executives are hoping for a buzzworthy performance from one of the most talked-about bands in the world. But just three days before the live show, Kurt is getting cold feet. He's in rehab at a clinic called Exodus in Los Angeles, in treatment for his heroin addiction. Add to that, he absolutely despises award shows. Nirvana is nominated for three awards, 
including Best New Artist, which they are likely to win. And despite the fact that he now plays regularly for thousands of fans at a time, the idea of holding an award and speaking into a camera in front of an audience of music industry bigwigs feels like a betrayal of his punk roots. Kurt gets a day pass from the rehab clinic, allowing him to attend a rehearsal for the show. In the book, Heavier Than Heaven, the author, Charles R. Cross, describes the scene. Controversy erupted from the first rehearsal. As Kurt walked into UCLA's Pauley Pavilion, he went up to MTV's Amy Finnerty, who was in charge of communication between Nirvana and MTV executives, and told her, I'm going to play a new song. Finnerty later remembered. He was all excited about it and acted like it was a gift. Much to the surprise of MTV's executives, who had expected to hear Smells Like Teen Spirit, the band cranked out Rape Me. It wasn't in fact a new song. Nirvana had been playing it in concert for two years, but it was new to MTV's brass. It had only 11 lines of lyrics. Rape me. Rape me, my friend. Rape me. Rape me again. It had the same catchy, soft, loud dynamic as Smells Like Teen Spirit, and with the odd chorus, it created a perfect Cobain aesthetic, beautiful, haunting, and disturbing. Finnerty was immediately pulled into a production trailer where she was lectured by her bosses about the band's song choice. They thought Rape Me was about MTV. Oh, come on, she protested. I could assure you that he didn't write a song for or about us. Kurt had written it back in late 1990, but by 1992, he had altered the lyrics to include a slam at Our Favorite Inside Source, a reference to the Vanity Fair article. Though he would defend the song in interviews as being an allegory of society's abuses, by September 1992, it had also come to represent a more personal metaphor for how he felt treated by the media, his managers, his bandmates, his addiction, and MTV as the MTV executives had astutely realized." Unquote. Rape me. Rape me, what followed was a game of wits between MTV execs and the still-in-rehab Kurt Cobain, negotiated by Amy Finnerty and Nirvana's management. If Kurt refused to change the song from Rape Me to one of their radio hits, then MTV would kick them off the show. Kurt was fine with that. So MTV raised the stakes. If Kurt did not play a different song, then MTV would stop airing Nirvana's music videos. Kurt was fine with that. He called their bluff, even though he privately dreaded the thought. In a final move, MTV threatened to fire Amy Finnerty if Nirvana did not perform and change the song. They had found Kurt's weakness, his empathy. He knew Amy from even before a single Nirvana video had made it to MTV. They had met backstage a few years ago at a concert in New York when Nirvana was touring for their Bleach album. And according to her, the two even spent a night out together at a local New York dive bar. Kurt relented. 
To everyone's surprise, Nirvana showed up to the final rehearsal on the day of the show. The book, Heavier Than Heaven, describes that moment. All eyes in the hall turned to Kurt as he entered, and in that moment, he reached down, grabbed Finnerty's hand, and defiantly walked down the center aisle, exaggeratedly swinging his arms with Amy's, like two toddlers on a daycare excursion. It was done entirely for the MTV honchos. Kurt was letting it be known that if they fired her, he wasn't playing their part. Unquote. For this final rehearsal, the band played Lithium. The relieved MTV staff clapped, and all was seemingly moving ahead as planned. But an hour before the show, a rumor began to circulate that once they went live, Kurt was planning to play Rape Me. This enraged the executives. They were going to be made fools of in front of millions of viewers, but their hands were tied. They had to devise a contingency plan. A producer notified the engineers in the broadcast booth that if Kurt starts playing Rape Me, cut to commercial immediately. There, disaster averted. Only one problem, no one knew what Rape Me sounded like, and it wasn't on their first two albums. The entire production was once again at the mercy of Kurt Cobain. And the MTV Video Music Awards were underway. Live from Los Angeles, the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards, performing Brian Adams, Black Crows, Bobby Brown, Eric Clapton, Def Leppard, and Vogue. The host for the evening was comedian Dana Carvey, who was still riding high from the success of the cult film Wayne's World, released earlier that year. The place was really filled with the who's who of 90s culture and music. Ice-T and Metallica presented the award for Best Rap Video. Halle Berry and Jean-Claude Van Damme presented the award for Best Video from a Film. Also in attendance were Criss Cross, Magic Johnson, Mick Jagger, Eddie Murphy, Annie Lennox, and Marky Mark. Performances included Red Hot Chili Peppers, Elton John, Michael Jackson, and Nirvana's arch-nemesis, Guns N' Roses. Then came the moment of truth. Nirvana took the stage. The crowd was ready, the engineers were ready, the producers were holding their breath. And now for all your lawn care needs, it's Nirvana! An awkward pause. Chris, Dave, and Kurt lock eyes for a moment and the first jangly strums of Kurt's guitar begin. Is it lithium? Is it rape me? Is it something else? It's rape me. An MTV executive starts sprinting toward the control room. It's happening. Kurt reneged on the deal. Everyone is getting fired. And then, he stops. An engineer's finger hovers over the cut to commercial button. Kurt starts playing lithium. Christ stands next to him, bass in hand, and puts up his right hand in a soldier's salute, as if to say, yes, sir, Mr. Executive, no rape me today. Christ later said, we did that to fuck with them. The performance goes on as planned, a solid performance from one of their hits from Nevermind, but not without incident. By the last chorus of the song, Christ, seemingly possessed by the spirit of the moment, hurls his bass guitar seven feet into the air, and it lands on his head. He falls to the ground as Kurt and Dave continue playing. Chris wobbles up, seemingly dazed, and stumbles off the stage, holding his head, as Kurt stabs an amplifier stack with his guitar, 
and Dave throws his drums. Dave then grabs the microphone at center stage and taunts Axl Rose, to the confusion of everyone in the audience. MTV got what they wanted, a buzz-worthy performance by Nirvana. That was a sneak preview of my Kurt Cobain series. I just completed it, and all three full-length episodes are available at my Patreon. In total, the three episodes of my Kurt Cobain series clock in at about four hours. So you know it's filled with just as much love and care as you get in the main podcast feed here. If you'd like to become a supporter and check that out, just head over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. If you'd like to buy me a coffee instead, or add a donation to my fancy books fund, you can do so on Venmo. Just search at Creative Codex, that's one word, in the businesses field. And I thank you in advance for that. Without further ado, back to part two of Leonardo da Vinci's Notebooks. The Treatise on Painting, which we've been discussing in this episode, is the only published book which credits Leonardo da Vinci as its author. But you want to know the crazy part. Technically, he didn't write it. His star pupil, Francesco Malzi, did. And here's what makes it even crazier. It wasn't even published in Leonardo's lifetime. Or Francesco's either. It was published 113 years after Leonardo's death. But why? To understand all of this, we have to rewind a little bit to the moment directly following Leonardo's death at Amboise, at the court of King Francis in France. Imagine this. Leonardo da Vinci dies on May 2nd, 1519. In his studio at Amboise, France, he leaves behind thousands of pages of notes, inventions, studies, illustrations, and personal writings. Despite Leonardo's great respect for the King of France, he does not entrust these documents to his care. Instead, he explicitly writes in his last will and testament that these personal effects belong to his star pupil, Francesco Melzi. There's no doubt that the relationship between Leonardo and Francesco was incredibly close. Enough so that in 1512, Leonardo stays at the family home of Francesco Melzi for roughly a year. Living with them is Francesco's biological father, and Salai, another male student of Leonardo's, who historians theorize was his romantic partner. The Melzi residence is a stately square villa overlooking the Ada River, 19 miles from Milan. Leonardo is 60 years old at this point, and this is when Francesco draws one of the few confirmed portraits of Leonardo. It's a beautiful red chalk illustration with Leonardo inside profile, his long curling hair flowing down to his neck and blending in with his impressive beard. To leave no shadow of a doubt of who the subject is of Melzi's portrait, the bottom of the page is labeled, in capital letters, Leonardo da Vinci. Melzi is not only Leonardo's star pupil. When Leonardo was in his 50s, he adopted Francesco Melzi as his surrogate son. This gave Francesco the true legal claim to Leonardo's possessions after he died in 1519. And this is why, after his death, Leonardo's notebooks came into Francesco's care 
with a clear directive given by Leonardo that Francesco should organize the notes into a treatise on painting and publish it to share all of his discoveries with the world. It's a task and responsibility that would prove to be an enormous undertaking. What we have now from those notebooks are 7,200 pages, which, as we mentioned in the last episode, are strewn across the world into numerous codices, or bound books. They are variously held in the care of museums, private collections, and even the Vatican. 7,200 pages. But according to the research of scholars, it's estimated Leonardo created between 20,000 to 28,000 pages of notes throughout his lifetime. It's unclear what happened to the thousands of pages which we don't have. If you have an Italian grandma, check her attic. Of the pages that we do have, though, they are so exceptional that they are enough to prove Leonardo's genius. But at the time of his death, it's estimated Leonardo still had about 14,000 of these pages in his possession. Just think about this. Leonardo da Vinci dies. Francesco Melzi, the master's star pupil, inherits 14,000 pages of his beloved master's notes, illustrations, and sketches. In the years to come, Francesco dedicates himself to the task of carrying out his master's final wish to create a treatise on painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Francesco begins to organize and arrange these pages, in some cases writing his own notes directly on them to help group similar subjects together, but also to make sense of Leonardo's unique writing habits. Leonardo not only wrote in mirror script, backwards, but he also had a unique shorthand for many phrases or words, which only a close acquaintance, like Francesco, would be able to decipher. He gathered all of the existing notebooks and loose leaves together, roughly 14,000 pages, and he stored them in his attic, which is where he would also work on them, into the late hours of the night. As we see in Leonardo's notes, it's clear he intended to write a treatise, and he had been working on it for most of his life. He made frequent notes about techniques, lessons, and concepts, which he would eventually want to include. And often, he makes mention of certain numbered principles, ones which he may have memorized and taught his students, but which he never seems to write down in a list. In a true reflection of Leonardo's creative process, these notes he made were never isolated to one journal or even isolated to pages with singular themes. Instead, a single page of Leonardo's notes would often include several topics chaotically mixed together, such as scientific observations, anatomical studies, personal insights, to-do lists, nature illustrations, and lessons about certain art forms. In a very real way, Leonardo's mind did not delineate between science and art. The two coexisted without boundary, and that is nowhere more clear than in his notebooks. What Francesco had taken on was a monumental task. I can't even imagine how much space 14,000 pages must take up, and where to even start, right? He devoted endless hours of labor to this task over the course of a lifetime. And during all of this, life continued. He married, he had children, and he continued his own successful career as a painter. Many of Francesco's works, 
have the hallmark touches of having been a true student of Leonardo. His paintings feature some of Leonardo's trademark sfumato shading, and his female figures also have that signature grace and lively smirk that his master's depictions of women were so well known for. But as arduously as Francesco Melzi tried, he never completed the task he set out to do. The treatise on painting was not finished or published during his lifetime. He died 50 years after Leonardo. Though the work could one day continue, he had done the hard part, organizing the chaos into appropriate sections and clarifying his master's writing. The treatise simply needed to wait for similarly studious hands. These 14,000 pages containing the master's illustrations and notes were then inherited by Francesco's son, Orazio Melzi. To put it bluntly, Orazio was not an artist. He was a lawyer. He lacked his father's passion for art, and he didn't know Leonardo, so he showed no interest in his father's strange hobby of toiling away in the attic, cataloging esoteric drawings and cryptic notes of some dead guy. And so life went on. Leonardo da Vinci's notes lay tucked away in Orazio's attic, for years gathering dust, quietly awaiting the next curious mind, until the day Orazio Melzi died. The vault of his attic was cracked open, and his heirs rediscovered the strange notes of Leonardo da Vinci, which by this point, a hundred years after his death, were once again serious items of interest among artists, historians, and royalty. Gratitude for this is owed to the historian Giorgio Vasari, whose book The Lives of the Great Artists continued to be a bestseller and featured a biography about Leonardo which praised him as the greatest mind of the Renaissance. And so, Orazio and Francesco's heirs begin to sell off the manuscripts to the highest bidders. Leonardo's leaves split off from that point in stacks, which are bound into various codices to be admired in the hands of kings and private collectors. And they have never been united again. It was likely around this time, in the 1600s, that thousands of Leonardo's pages were lost or destroyed. It is suspected by scholars that only one-third of his notes survive today. And who knows what wonders could have existed on them? What divinely inspired illustrations or rare discoveries of human anatomy? Perhaps some proof that he practiced alchemy? A diagram of a perfected flying machine? Or perhaps a Vitruvian woman? We'll never know. But what we do have is treasure enough and confirms Leonardo's genius for us 500 years later. Leonardo's treatise on painting was finally published in 1632 in France, 113 years after his death and 62 years after Francesco Melzi's death. This particular collection of his notes is known as the Codex Urbinas, that's U-R-B-I-N-A-S. It's currently held in the Vatican Library, which was painstakingly arranged by Francesco's own hand, with the stated purpose of sharing Leonardo's insights about painting with the world. Francesco did it. A little delayed, but, you know, life is life. Let's give credit where credit is due.
Chapter 4 The Vitruvian Man The most famous illustration in the world is from Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. We know it as the Vitruvian Man. It's also been called the Proportions of Man, as well as the Canon of Proportions. Leonardo completed this illustration in 1490, while living and working in Milan. He was 38 years old at this time. The Vitruvian Man is said to be the most valuable illustration in the world though its true value is impossible to determine, because the museum which houses it will definitely never sell it. Its home is in Venice, Italy, at the Galerie dell'Accademia, and if it's any indication of its true value, the museum has insured the illustration for roughly one billion dollars. This fragile piece of paper, measuring 14 inches long and 10 inches across, is over 530 years old. The museum keeps it in a darkened and climate-controlled vault, in the most ideal conditions, so as not to upset a single speck of dust from the original paper, which you can see is flaking on its edges. Leonardo's Vitruvian Man is the closest thing we have in art history to a sacred relic, and it's one which only a few select people are allowed to see. So, why was the illustration created, and what did it mean to Leonardo? Leonardo was in Milan from 1482 to 1499. At this time, he was enlisted to provide his design skills for the Milan Cathedral. There he met with two friends, who were fellow artists, one with whom he was working on the cathedral, named Francesco di Giorgio, and another who joined them for dinner, named Giacomo Andrea. The three of them often enjoyed lengthy conversations about art, architecture, and mathematics, often over wine. At this time, they all shared their fascination with the writings of an ancient Roman author named Vitruvius. A notorious book of his had just recently been translated and made available to curious readers. Marcus Vitruvius Polio was an architect and author from around 80 BCE in Rome. He's often simply referred to as Vitruvius. His most celebrated work is also the only surviving book on architecture from classical antiquity. It's called De Architectura, also known today as the Ten Books of Architecture. The Italian Renaissance was born out of a renewed interest and passion for ancient texts and art forms, and Vitruvius's De Architectura was among those classical works which historians say gave birth to the Renaissance. It was even quoted in the writing of Alberti, who greatly influenced the young Leonardo in his first anatomy studies. A particular philosophy in Vitruvius's writing grabbed the attention of Leonardo and his two artist friends. Vitruvius argued that all great temples should be built to the proportions set out in the human body, and that this approach best represents the divine relationship between the microcosm of man and the macrocosm of the earth. It's a beautiful argument, but how to execute it? The three friends studied the passages in Vitruvius concerning the proportions of the human body, in which he also lays out specific measurements which illustrate the mathematical relationship 
between all the body's parts, something which we know Leonardo had a special interest in. It's been said in hindsight that at this point in time, Leonardo was the greatest anatomist in the world. Vitruvius writes, In a temple, there ought to be harmony in the symmetrical relations of the different parts to the whole. In the human body, the central point is the navel. If a man is placed flat on his back, with his hands and feet extended, and a compass centered at his navel, his fingers and toes will touch the circumference of a circle thereby described. And just as the human body yields a circular outline, so too a square may be found from it. For if we measure the distance from the soles of the feet to the top of the head, and then apply that measure to the outstretched arms, the width will be found to be the same as the height, as in the case of a perfect square." Unquote. Well, Leonardo saw this as a worthy challenge. He had always been engaged by the mathematical riddle of squaring a circle. Perhaps this would get him one step closer to that solution. He set to work, but so did his friends. They produced their own Vitruvian man diagrams. Francesco Di Giorgio drew three sketches with brown charcoal pencil. Simple drawings showing a nude figure with his arms extending horizontally in a relaxed pose, standing within a circle and a square. And two other variations showing the figure combined with cathedral measurements. Giacomo Andrea made a sketch showing a nude figure with his arms extended and stretching upward, with feet close together. It's a loose sketch with rough proportions. Leonardo, on the other hand, created a masterpiece. He took to his large parchment paper, and with brown ink, he executed a flawless depiction of a nude male figure, with his arms and legs outstretched, while within a circle and a square, as described by Vitruvius. Where Leonardo's illustration differs from Giorgio's and Andrea's is the undeniable ingenuity and craft on display. The male body Leonardo illustrates is flawless in its proportions. Every joint, muscle, and tendon just feels right. Informing Leonardo's measurements was his countless hours of studying anatomy and his 30 dissections of human corpses. To this day, 500 years later, the illustration is still considered mathematically and anatomically perfect. That is the element of craft, but the ingenuity displayed is just as stunning. The first thing your eye notices when seeing it is the multiple limbs. The male figure has four arms and four legs, because Leonardo has chosen to show the arms stretched out horizontally and at an upward angle. The reason for this will be clear soon, and he has chosen to represent the legs straight, with one foot pointed outward to show its measurement, and two legs stretched at an outward diagonal. Although on first impression it appears to be two poses, you can see the man in the image in up to 16 different poses, accounting for the different combinations of his arms and legs. By some feat of artistry, all the poses, when seen in their various combinations, look equally natural and anatomically correct. No one before Leonardo ever attempted or represented such a visualization of the human body, and with his unrivaled knowledge of anatomy, he executes it flawlessly, without a wasted line. As you look above and below the male figure, you can see Leonardo's notorious mirror script. In these notes, 
He has included the original statements that Vitruvius made about the mathematical proportions of the human figure. But he does one more than that. He also corrects some of the measurements of that celebrated architect and includes his own measurements where his knowledge is superior. One final thing to notice, the circle and the square. They are out of position. One of the key details in Vitruvius's description that sparked Leonardo's imagination mentions that the human figure can fit within a circle and a square, where the navel forms the center of the circle. There's no doubt that Leonardo attempted this first, but realized it would be impossible to represent the human body's proportions as they truly are, and to also accommodate the center of the circle and the center of the square to both be at the navel. And this is where he outdid all other artists before him who attempted Vitruvius's diagram. Leonardo's great insight was that the human figure could fit within a circle with the navel at its center, but the square would have to have a different center, the base of the generative organs. And in this arrangement, he succeeded in bringing all of the proportions into perfect alignment. Notice how the height of the man fits perfectly in the square, and his outstretched horizontal arms touch the inside edge of the square with his fingers. This demonstrates the principle that a man's height is equivalent to the length of his outstretched arms, and thereby, when standing upright with arms horizontal, he can fit perfectly in a square. All this is possible if the center of the square is considered as the base of the generative organs. Now notice how his outstretched horizontal arms cannot fit within the circle's edge, but they can if he raises them up at a diagonal, lining up perfectly within the circle, with his feet also touching the bottom edge of the circle, as long as his navel is the center. It's a remarkable feat of craftsmanship and ingenuity, which perfectly encapsulates Leonardo's philosophy and the spirit of the Renaissance, that we are beings equally divine and terrestrial. It's a distinctly humanist view that projects a profound dignity on each individual and recognizes our responsibility to our place in nature. This illustration is the perfect embodiment of the fusion of science and art which formed the spirit of the Renaissance. In the Vitruvian Man, as in all of Leonardo's notes, we find confirmed that strange fact of this rare individual, that here was a man with a scientist's intellect and an artist's soul. This concludes the Leonardo da Vinci Notebooks series. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
It was really so rewarding to take a deep dive into that rare mind of his, and after spending so much time in his head, I find myself seeing the world very differently. And unexpectedly, I also see the color orange very differently. Now I call it yellowish red. <laughs> you know, stumbling on that little historical tidbit was a complete surprise. But it's those kinds of little moments that really make the research side of this show so rewarding. After listening to this series, you might find yourself in the mood for more treatises. Well, I suggest listening to episode 21, The Magic Secrets of Salvador Dali. It's honestly one of my favorite episodes of the show. Things get very silly there at one point. In episode 21, we explore Salvador Dali's treatise on painting, which he titled 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. And throughout his writing, you can tell he was very likely inspired by reading Leonardo's treatise on painting. Comparing the two, side by side, lends for some pretty funny contrasts. If you'd like to listen to my Kurt Cobain series, which you heard a preview of in the middle of this episode, just head over to my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n. And you can find all three episodes there as a thank you to the $5 and up tiers. On that note, I'd like to thank all of my listeners for all of your support in all the various ways that you show your support by rating the show on Spotify, writing reviews on Apple Podcasts, sending me emails, sending me messages on Instagram, commenting on the Creative Codex YouTube videos, supporting through Patreon, and even sending donations to my fancy books fund through Venmo. Believe me, none of it goes unnoticed. All of it is so very much appreciated. And I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. On that note, some shout-outs are in order to my Patreon supporters. First, sending a long-distance high-five to my executive producer in the Dream Maker tier, Mike Hill. Thank you. I appreciate you. Sending big thank yous to my Karma Coma supporters, Adana, Blake Bobbitt, Brian Drury, Christelle82, Cryptic Hubris, Dan Sorrells, Don Frias, Isaac Abizadeh, Josh Smith, Julio Chavez, Chris with a K, Marav Seren, Misha, Michael Thompson, Miss Alex Kennedy, Mona Oman, Russ Jones, Sam McCohey, Vandan Panchal, and Talitha Santana. It's an honor to have your support. Thank you so much. Next, shout-outs to my Shadow Fan Plus crew. Aaron Knight, Ben Thernhofer, Blake Huggins, Brittany Miller, Cerise Walker, Donna Toms-Jones, Frank Warren, Fred, Grain of Sand, Hannah Helton, Helena DeMarzio, James S.Z., Jane Van Elk, Jeremy, Joe Russell, John Bergmans, John Harrington, Karina, Casey Vandenberg, Ken Goodyear, Lane Zong, Libby Hawker, Logan Kshivitsky, Louise Benton, Lyle Vincent, Maria, Marissa, Matt Perra, Matt Seibert, Michael Gaffrey, Michael Pisano, Nicole Locilento, Nicole Wessel, Nicole Chen, Rebecca Redding, Ryan Huff, Sean Matthew Howard, Steve Struhar, Tyler McKenzie, Hugh July, Louis Cornejo, Pablo Mateus, Ruben Corona, Susan Maggie, Susie Creamcheese, Tom Rubens, Deborah Myers, Nuit Dor, Adelie Poulin, 
Angela Lau, Daisy Hernandez, Doxy, Haley, Janine Taylor, Jenna Cooper, Jitsu Shurash, John Waterlow, Juliette Gray, Kevin Connell, Kirsten Dressler, Lyndon, Nick Mora, Normand Bremner, Owen McCatier, Sarah Tucker, Talia Gallegos Fada, The Celestial Broom, Tom Ney, and of course, Zuko's World. Thank you so much, guys. I couldn't do this without you. And the thank yous for all you fine Shadow Fam folks are written in the episode description. I appreciate you too. The next full length narrative episode will be about the artist Hieronymus Bosch. He was chosen in a poll by listeners of the show, which I included on the Creative Codex page on Spotify. I've got a few books on him already, and I'm getting started on that one as we speak. If you're interested in any book recommendations for Leonardo's notebooks and treatise, I've put my sources in the episode description, including their free digital equivalents, and I highly recommend them all. This is Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. Until next time, stay curious and stay inspired.